Greetings, outcasts, freethinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first hour episode of The Notes. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon hokey pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show! This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. here at the melt are not huge supporters of isms or ists self-categorization is not only self-limiting but often involves a good deal of oversimplification humans are complex confluences of nuanced superpositions that tend to be more fluid than solid when given the free reign to do so the more arbitrary the categories we self-identify with the more ridiculous it seems to adhere to them and many of the most prominent categories are the most arbitrary. Merely because differences exist between any given group needn't be a reason for division, but perhaps an opportunity to appreciate the differences and recognize the similarities. Whatever the case, one of the most pervasive psyops is the manufactured quote-unquote war of the sexes. And I dare say that this couldn't have existed if it weren't for the manufactured feminist movement. As today's guest, Rachel Wilson, will break it down for us, the feminist movement was not a grassroots movement born out of the growing dissatisfaction of women who felt oppressed and demeaned, but more of a robber baron-funded stratagem to sow discontent, draw women out of the home and into factories, thereby doubling taxable workers, and breaking up the family whilst giving the state more access and control over the children. We also talk about her latest book, Occult Feminism, The Secret History of Women's Liberation. And I start off the conversation by asking Rachel what brought her to want to write such a book in the first place. Oh, uh, well, 
I am a mother and homemaker. I have five children and the oldest kids were graduating and moving off into the big bad world. And I was like, oh man, I'm kind of like, I'm past the halfway point. You know, my kids are getting older. I should probably think about, you know, uh, what I want to do now that I'm having a little bit more time and, and what I'll do when I have empty nest syndrome and all that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I kind of asked my husband what he thought, cause I'm one of those people that I have so many interests that my main problem is choosing one thing. Um, I can and I was like, what, what do you think I should do? And, um, at that point I had already been doing some internet debates, uh, about feminism and stuff like that. And my husband felt like I was pretty uniquely suited to that for a woman. So he's like, you should probably do something with that, you know? Um, so I thought I was going to write a book about, you know, the, the history of the feminist movements and who funded them and things like that. But it turned out to be something a little different than that when I got about halfway <laughs> through the research. So. so you weren't looking for an occult angle that just kind of presented itself. Yes as these things sometimes do. I mean, the word occult just means hidden, right? So if you're digging in and doing a bunch of research and you find, you know, occult roots to it, it shouldn't be super surprising because, well, they wouldn't be overt, would they? They wouldn't be just right out in the open necessarily. But yeah, as I started profiling a lot of the, you know, early suffragists, I just happened to notice that many of them were spirit mediums, tarot card readers, um, claimed to have automatic writing capabilities or be clairvoyant or things like that. And then I found that a lot of them were into theosophy and goddess worship and various forms of occult, you know, belief systems. And I thought, well, I can't just not tell that part of the story since Mm. it, it was such a big part of the story. And then of course, like digging into all the theory and the philosophy of it, you find out why, uh, the occult is so attractive to feminists and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So why is the occult so attractive to feminists? Yeah. So um, if you think about your typical, maybe American girl or uh, anyone in the West, we probably grow up in something of a nominally Christian society or household, um, even if you don't have like religious parents necessarily, but they're just kind of you know, like culturally Christian or something like that. Sure. You go off to university as a young lady and you take a couple studies in or classes in like gender studies or even psychology or sociology or a lot of fields that are really, really steeped in feminist theory, even if people don't realize that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is very in your face, like feminist, but some of it is more subtle but you hear, start to hear a lot about the evil patriarchy and misogyny and that we have to have women's equality and we want women in STEM fields. And there just tends to be this like um, indoctrination that happens to a lot of young women in universities. I think a lot of us have seen the before and after photos on the internet of like a young girl before she goes to university and after she comes out with like a shaved head and yes. neck tattoos and face piercings. Yeah. And, and a lot of people get radicalized. A lot of young women do. So imagine you're that girl and you kind of grew up with this Christ figure and Christianity is an inherently patriarchal religion. We, you know, the study of early church history is called patristics. We have patriarchs in the church, the Old Testament patriarchs like Abraham and Moses. So it is a patriarchal religion. So if you go to university and get radicalized that the patriarchy is the most evil, oppressive force in history, well, 
you don't want to be Christian because you see it as this oppressive patriarchal structure, but women in particular still have a need for a spiritual element in their life. So things like goddess worship, witchcraft in its various forms, whether it's like Wicca or, um, you know, kind of the more, now we have a lot of DIY new agey kind of occult religion where you kind of take all the little fun parts you like, like you'll do some stuff with crystals. Um, you know, you'll read horoscopes, you might have tarot cards. Like now there's a lot of kind of make your own occult religion. It's always been a little bit that way, but certainly now that's what a lot of young women are doing. So it's just like, kind of they'll reach for any alternative to patriarchy and they find it in the occult. It's very appealing. And there's a lot of female empowerment there that is not found in Christianity. So if you want to be a boss babe and you want to find your empowerment as a young woman, things like Wicca or, you know, goddess worship are very attractive. You know, the divine feminine and like uh, channeling your sexual power and things like that. So that's mainly why it's so attractive. Well, you can get like your, your starter kit at Urban Outfitters now. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, you can, you can get the little um, tapestry hang on the wall. You can get your candles and your sage and your incense. And then you can, um, you know, follow some witches on TikTok who will teach you how to water your house plants with your menses. Um, And you can start following moon cycles and all that kind of thing. So uh, I think my favorite Reddit thread to kind of study to see what's going on in the pop culture with this stuff is uh, witches versus the patriarchy. If you've never been there, it's something else. It's a really interesting Reddit thread of like very radicalized feminist girls who fancy themselves witches and they'll tell you all about it. So very interesting interesting stuff. Yeah. It's an interesting trend too. I've found, I mean, society, mainstream society today tends to be science. Science is the new religion. So atheism follows right after that, but there's a lot of lefties who have started wearing this sort of satanic witchy apparel. And it's like, wait a second, if you don't believe in a God, do you, are you saying you believe in Satan? I mean, it just doesn't make any logical sense. I, it just like it's like the new, like the swastika was what the punks in the seventies were wearing. It's like yeah. that. It's very yeah. odd. Yeah, I agree. It's like the non-theistic Satanism is very popular with like the radical progressive left, yeah. and mainly just because it's a giant middle finger to like yes. Christian moral culture, right? That's exactly. Mainly what it is, they're like, I believe in science, but if this makes you mad for me yeah. to wear like a pentagram on my shirt from Hot Topic, then that's what I'm going to wear to <laughs> stick it to the man and, and you know. Yeah. Give the middle finger to the moral majority, right? Yes, so I don't exactly. even know that we have a moral majority. That was a thing when I was growing up in the 80s, but yeah. that's probably not a thing anymore now that I think of it. Yeah. Now it's the immoral majority. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now Whatever. it's who are you to tell me I can't be in a polyamorous relationship with exactly. my boyfriend, my girlfriend, and their cats. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. While dressed as cats. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I just quickly wanted to say, you know, I, what I find interesting about this push against Christianity is that if you really do delve into, uh, biblical studies and theology, you find that there are a lot of powerful women in Christianity and maybe those voices, exactly. Maybe those voices have been silenced, but let me, let me just quickly grab this book. Hold on one second. 
Sure. I know. I think what book you're getting. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. But this is probably, I mean, in the last 20 years, easily my favorite book that I've read. Uh, it's called The Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And it's really, you know, a a indictment of how some women were taken out of the Bible. And there was this real um, intention to do that because, uh, you know, the establishment in the church did not want women to seem powerful. They did not want women to have any agency in um, the, any kind of a religious dialogue. So, you know, we, we can paint Mary Magdalene as a whore. We can look at, you know, the sacred mother as someone that was maybe weak for some reason. So, you know, some people could posit that the sacred mother, Mary Magdalene, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, these are the original feminists. <laughs> <laughs> and could be could be seen in that way. So I find it interesting that these women are not championed by feminists. Yeah, it is interesting that they don't. Well, the thing about that is there's so now um, in the first thousand years, we had mainly one church and then we had lots of kind of heretical sects like the Gnostics and the Nestorians and the Arians. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of those, most of those still survive and they're still around. So it kind of depends on who you ask, right? Like right. there are some Gnostic Christians who are feminist, but like from, uh, I'm an Orthodox Christian. So from my church's standpoint, we would call those people basically occultists because Gnosticism has, uh, it's based on Gnosis, uh, oftentimes secret knowledge that you have to perform ritual rites in order to, you know, gain that knowledge. But um, it's, it does get a little bit murky and difficult with Christianity because you have you know, the first thousand years you had mainly one unified church, and then we have the great schism in 1054 where the Roman church breaks right. away, forms the papacy, mm -hmm. um, and the Eastern Orthodox don't agree. And right. then 500 years after that, we've got the Protestant Reformation, and now we have a whole third um, type of Christianity that doesn't agree with the other two. And so it kind of does depend on who you ask. I I'm a big theology nerd, so I do like to get into that with people when it's appropriate. But most people, when they find like my content or my book, I'm not trying to totally beat them over the head with it. Although I will say like the only negative reviews the book has that are honest, not just trolls. I get some feminists who just troll the book and leave a one star review and say, I didn't even read this. I just know it's terrible. Oh, God. Um, oh, but there are some legitimate reviews where people are disappointed that I included anything theological at all they wanted like a very straightforward facts kind of book i think those are people who watched my debates and maybe heard a lot of my secular arguments and we're hoping for a book like that but that mm -hmm. book's coming next i'm coming out with one at the end of the summer that's going to have my, like my top 15 arguments against feminism and it's going to be like all data statistics it's going to be less philosophical and less theological but this book was really fun to write and it didn't turn out to be the book I thought I was going to write. So, I mean, when you try to research something, I think the best way to do it is just start looking and not with an idea in mind of like, okay, I'm trying to create a narrative, but to yeah. just like see where the research takes you and then let the story kind of tell itself. Mm -hmm. That's the approach that I took with this because it's more of a historical narrative than anything I'd say. 
Well, that's really the scientific method. <laughs> that's what's amazing. Well, it is that's the, what's amazing. Like the actual scientific. Exactly. Method. You're not. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to dial into what your belief system is and say, "See, see, I told you." You're actually right. examining history and then making a determination based on that. So I applaud that yeah. because I think that's yeah. a very rare skill. So thank yeah. you. Well, I think that all of us have a worldview. We all have presuppositions that are baked into our worldview. And that does to a some extent, I mean, I guess nobody is perfectly unbiased, right? None of us are just completely without bias, but you try not to just let let that completely taint the entire narrative and, and tell a story or try to twist things too much. So yeah, I was kind of shocked that I was, I had no idea. And I just thought, well, if if I've never heard this, I'm sure there's a lot of other people who would have no idea that Elizabeth Cady Stanton like rewrote the first five books of the of the Old Testament to take out all the stuff she thought was, you know, um, patriarchal oh oppression God. and to, uh, <laughs> you know, her in her foreword, she said the point of writing the women's Bible was to transform Christianity into something unrecognizable. And the reason she said that had to be done is she said, if I could take the Bible and just get rid of it, I would. But it's the most popular book that's ever been written. Everyone's got one now. There's nothing I can do about that. So what we have to do is rewrite it and basically redefine the religion into something completely different or women will never be free, according to her. And, you know, when you're going through high school and you're taking your basic history class, you never hear about Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton having these kinds of beliefs that mm-hmm. motivated their political activism. You basically just get this narrative that like one day they looked around and went, oh no, we're oppressed. We should march or something and like demand to vote. And that's totally not what happened. That's not what happened at all. So I was, I was really interested in their motivations. Like what made a woman in the 1700s like Mary Wollstonecraft or what made a woman in the middle 1800s like Margaret Fuller start writing political tracts against you know for the rights of women or against the patriarchy like you want I wanted to know like what was going on with them that gave them that motivation because one it kind of illustrates the fact that this idea that women weren't allowed to do anything Mm -hmm. is wrong Mm. um they were the the fact is that most women just weren't interested in that sort of thing. Most women didn't want to sit down and write a political tract, right? They just, they were interested in their families, their communities, their churches, like that was their sphere and their domain. So for a woman to do that at a time period when that's going to be controversial, I was just like, oh, what, you know, what motivated them to do that? So that's kind of how I looked at it and why I started profiling all these prominent women and reading what they were writing, because I wanted to know for myself. And yeah. what did you come up with? Uh, well, this uh, this theme that it's with almost all of them. There's maybe, I mean, you could maybe argue Simone de Beauvoir being an existential philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, like spiritual beliefs do come into play, but she was already operating from a very like secular atheist materialist paradigm. Mm-hmm. Just kind of, she was probably one of the only ones that really just rejected the metaphysical part of feminism all the rest of them, uh, that was what motivated them. Their, whatever their spiritual paradigm they were working from is really what how they came to the conclusion of being like a feminist activist. So they were in some way opposed 
to the traditional structures of the time based on usually religious beliefs. So like a lot of the early Crowleyan circles or the early theosophists like Madame Blavatsky, um, these were systems where they had temple priestesses and they had goddesses and they had a, a lot of like magic traditions that involved things like sex magic, which were, you know, like completely verboten in Christianity and totally crucial to those kinds of belief systems where uh, sex magic is the most powerful form. According to anyone, no matter what kind of magic mm -hmm. you're studying, sex magic is always the one that's the most powerful because it involves so much human emotion and, and helps project the will. That's what magic is, right? That's what witchcraft is. Any type of any type of magic is going to be a projection of your will to affect the reality around you. So mm -hmm. a lot of these women find that first. They would, you know, start going to a Golden Dawn temple or they would go to a Theosophical Society meeting or or hang out with the Transcendental Club. A lot of them were into like the prototypical New Age stuff in the 1800s, which also kind of had one foot in the socialist theory camp. You know what I mean? So I'm just looking at their worldviews, their belief systems, and then how that trickles over into the politics that they believed in or, you know, their why they would start being activists so that's mainly what it is is like some in for some reason rejecting like the christian society around them going towards another belief system that involves you know female empowerment and then that informs their like political worldview and and what they think society should look like and how they think things should be structured and they start doing their activism based on that at what point do you think that it started becoming sort of a unified agenda like, it seems like what you're describing almost sounds organic, like it just, these things fell into place and then it started heading in a particular direction. But when do you think there there became a more motivational force behind it? Yeah, so I start the book explaining that these systems and belief structures are as old as humanity itself. So these themes are woven in from the very beginning, from the oldest civilizations that we that we know about. So these threads have always been there, but it could not become dominant, a dominant like political force until the industrial revolution. So mm -hmm. we're talking like early 1700s when things become mechanized, when we have printing presses and we start having, you know, industrially produced goods and factories opening and things like that. This is what kind of makes feminism possible because if you're in a pre-industrial society, you're going to rely completely on men for, you know, all of the labor, like the hardest labor. It's not that women didn't do labor. They certainly did. We all did pre-industrial era, right? But men were the only ones who could raise armies and protect nations and, um, you know, kind of run things and protect women from bad men, things like that. Uh, so like it never could really coalesce. Like you said, it couldn't to use an alchemical term, it could not coagulate into this like unified movement, which now not only has become dominant in the West, but it's becoming dominant almost everywhere. Like it's really spread the globe as we've become so interconnected in the digital digital age. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was like just around the time of the Industrial Revolution where you see other social revolutions. So it's very tied in with, um, you know, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the, you know, rebellion against monarchies. 
uh, where we begin to have nation states instead of kingdoms and monarchies that starts, you know, and then uh, you see the more that things become mechanized, the more women can reconcile that they can be independent from men, mm -hmm. right? The more they start to think I can, you know, earn money independent of my husband's income. Uh, and if that's the case, then why, if I, for any reason, don't want to be married anymore, why do I have to be, you know, it just, it, it changed so much about how we lived that it really kind of made this possible where it wasn't before. So I think that's why we see, I mean, Mary Wollstonecraft's largely credited with being the first person to really get the first wave feminism going. She's around in the 1700s, right around the time of the French Revolution. And she starts writing these political tracts. And she was really kind of like prototypical of what you would imagine the first feminist might be. She was hanging out in intellectual circles with all of the big intellectual heavy hitters of her time, like Thomas Paine and William Godwin. And she's traveling around Europe. She has a an affair with a married man. She has a child out of wedlock. She's like making her own money by writing and doing speeches. And she kind of, this is another really common theme that I found. When these women just kind of start, if they're any good at writing, if they're any good at all at speaking, whatever elites of the time want social upheaval will kind of co-opt them and push them to the front. So mm -hmm. it wasn't always so much a case of, wow, this woman was just so exceptional that everybody had to take notice, maybe a little bit, but a lot of it was really the men of the time who were in the elite class who wanted kind of a reshuffling of the economic order. They wanted a redrawing of like, you know, boundaries of, of states and kingdoms and things like that. Major power players who we'd call like global elites at the time, mm -hmm. kind of, hand-picked and um, recruited certain women to push to the forefront of the movement and really promote them and get them out there. Because you think to yourself, like, this is what I thought when I was doing the research, how would a woman who's just like making a living writing be traveling the world, mm -hmm. right? That was expensive and difficult mm -hmm. in the 1700s. So she had to have sponsorship and she did. She had sponsorship, sponsorship from male elites of the time. And it was the same thing with a lot of the suffragettes, uh, like Victoria Woodhull would be one. She was really pushed by like the Carnegies and um, Margaret Sanger pushed by the Rockefellers. So we always see like a, a, usually a really wealthy global elite man kind of recruiting a woman who has the ideology and then pushing her to the front and promoting her and kind of using her as the face because a lot of people don't know the average woman wanted nothing to do with suffrage or women's liberation, unfortunately. And this was another common thing in their writings. All the feminists of this time were very frustrated that they could not get average women on board. They would write things like, you know, here I am making these speeches and writing these like thoughtful political tracts and women don't want to read them. They just want to read romance novels or they want to <laughs> plan parties or shop for dresses. And I thought, well, I don't know if too much has changed in that regard. Then. I think I think the average woman today is probably still maybe we're more politicized because of the internet a little, but in sure. general, they're watching the makeup channels, right, and stuff like that. So I thought that was a little bit funny that they were so frustrated they could not get women to like pay attention and read their stuff. So yeah. um, the reason that they kind of had to find women and put them at the front of the movement was because 
how else are you going to try to get, how are you going to push this as being for women yeah. if it's only men trying to push it, right? So that's kind of how they chose certain people and pushed them to the front. So the the maybe the agenda started to coagulate, maybe that's the right word, uh, concurrently with the funding that was coming. So they were getting nudges from the these sort of social elites that yeah. were uh, morphed sort of into the social engineers of the day. Yes. Right? Okay. When did the intelligence agency start coming in? Like in the 60s? Um, well, you could actually go back to Madame Blavatsky at least. Um, there was probably connections even during the revolutionary period because a lot of the intellectual, like Benjamin Franklin would be one, a lot of the people who were in these elite circles traveling back and forth, going from France to Britain, back to America, negotiating treaties and, and you know, um, organizing the politics of the time kind of in this revolutionary period. Most of them were intelligence assets. Now, we didn't have a CIA or anything like that. It was more uh, various bands of military intelligence and then like you know, the king would have his spies and things like that. So technically, you could probably go all the way back to that and see some connection. But I would say as far as like more organized intelligence, certainly by the time the OSS had formed, like Julia Child was actually um, an agent for the OSS right before it became the CIA. Wow. Um, So they were starting and and even uh, Madame Blavatsky, she was a double agent um, she might have actually been working for more than two different agencies, but we don't know for sure. A lot of what we know about her has to be kind of speculated and taken with a grain of salt because she's a notorious fraudster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but we do know she at least worked for British intelligence and, and probably Russian intelligence. And, um, you know, so a lot of, I think, her social work was probably actually a bit of a front in some ways for doing intelligence work. And then certainly by the time we get to World War II and then the 1960s, right after World War II, when the CIA decided they were going to start steering social movements because of the Cold War is when mm-hmm. it real like when you really get a lot of intelligence assets in feminism and you have the CIA explicitly pushing feminist propaganda through the Congress for cultural freedom, through Operation Mockingbird, where they're using media outlets. And and they recruited Gloria Steinem right out of Smith College to travel to Europe, India, you know, all around the world, um, helping to promote feminist propaganda. And same thing with Playboy magazine, Mm -hmm. Uh, Ms. Magazine, the first feminist magazine was funded and started with CIA money Mm -hmm. um, through their agent Clay Felker, who had a really close relationship with Steinem. So that's when you could say it like really heated up and you really saw the American CIA pushing it. But it was it was kind of part of that Cold War social engineering project that they were doing. Mm-hmm. Do you think they saw the the women's movement as a sort of an opportunity to maybe utilize it as a divide and conquer psyop, like to break up oh, the family? Sure. Yeah, I think there were multiple reasons because usually when I say, hey, there was a lot of like conspiracy, if you will, going on with this movement, it was it wasn't grassroots in the way people think. Right. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like all the women felt so strongly that they demanded this until women's liberation came about. It really wasn't like that at all. And, and so people will say, well, but why then? Like, why would elites care? Why would intelligence agencies or governments, like, why would the ruling elite care about this? Well, a whole bunch of reasons. 
first of all, we just talked about how the Industrial Revolution had just come about, and you have this proliferation of wealthy industrialists like the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, the Mellon family, um, just a whole bunch of them, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted to continue to kind of monopolize and, and do monopoly capitalism, but Oddly, a lot of them were working with socialists across the ocean and things like this. So it gets a little bit murky, but they had a few reasons why they wanted to push feminism. One is the same group of guys who were at the Jekyll Island Club conspiring to get the income tax passed and the Federal Reserve Act shoved through under everyone's nose in 1913. Those are the same guys who funded the end of the suffrage movement. They didn't start it, but they kind of pushed it across the finish line because well, if you just passed an income tax, you want as many people paying income yes, taxes as yes. possible, exactly. right? Of course. So, yeah. so how are we going to push women out of the home and convince them they have to go take a crummy job in a factory? Like, that's going to be a tough sell. Well, it turns out if you tell them they're oppressed and they need to have their own money because they need some kind of insurance and cushion against, like, what if your husband turns into an alcoholic and starts beating you? or, you know, convince them that they're oppressed and need their own money and all that sort of thing. They need a life outside of the home to be yeah. fulfilled. Uh, they could get, number one, you get a lot of cheap labor too. That's the other thing, kind of doubled the workforce, which drove some wages down, it gives them a larger pool of cheaper, unskilled labor mm -hmm. for them to use in their factories. It doubles the income tax, which is great for the, for the elites. It helped fund all the social welfare programs that they wanted. Um, and it just, another side effect of that is you get women out of the home working all day and then you have dad out working all day. Where do the kids go? Well, it gave the government a really lovely excuse to create government funded daycare centers yes. and public school, compulsory public school systems mm -hmm. where the state can now train and indoctrinate and condition the whole population in, in any way they want to. The average child right now spends 36 minutes of quality time with their parents per day and eight hours or so on average in either a daycare or a public school system. So we can kind of see who's going to have the most influence um, in the population. And this is also happening at a time like we just said, okay, the CIA starts pushing this right after World War II. Well, what's the other thing that happened in the CIA right after World War II? MKUltra. Right. So they're already studying how do we use propaganda? How do we use uh, medical interventions? How do we even mind wipe people so we can reprogram them the way that we see fit? So this was a giant literal mind control project. So at the same time, they're pushing feminism because then we can we can funnel and herd all of the children into the public system and then whatever you know we learn from this experimentation as to how to control and manipulate public opinion we can we have a direct line to just disseminate that throughout the entire public really fast so i mean that's why you see such a giant cultural shift i think from world war ii to like the end of the 60s you're looking at like two completely different populations between those two generations so that's one of the ways that they facilitated that i do want to dial the the timeline back farther than that because 
if you look at the influence and effect of alcohol in the culture and how that affected relationships between men and women, uh, I think that the push came long before the CIA was involved. Uh, I think women were put in a situation once saloons opened and men were getting drunk at saloons and leaving the home on a Friday and not coming back till Monday, if ever, uh, I think that made women vulnerable. And there was a Christian movement of women that now would be considered feminist uh, that was started by my great, great, great aunt, Carrie Nation, who went into saloons and broke them up and you know, was a deeply devoted Christian woman who was jailed, uh, attempted murder uh, when she was in prison. Like they starved her. They put her in a cold cell. They did everything they possibly could. And this is someone who basically spent her entire life in service to God and Christianity and service to people. Like that's what she did. So what I find fascinating is that Again, she could be considered one of the earliest feminists because she was really fighting for women to uh, retain and maintain the family unit, and it nearly killed her because of the alcohol component. So do you think that, I know this is going to sound like kind of a woo-woo question, but do you think on some level there is some demonic element here that is involved in this? Because if you were talking about Christianity and, you know, the nature of the family and the nature of spirituality or religion, and then you're looking at these other elements that are coming in, maybe the, the CIA was uh, opportunistic in a sense, but could there be something greater that is involved here in this this battle against Christians? Oh, I definitely think there is. So there's a couple of things I want to say about that. I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's an interesting part of this story that I don't get to talk about very often. So I'm glad that you mentioned it. Um, people wonder why I took a whole chapter to talk about kind of the founding of America and its Protestant roots. One of the reasons I did that is to kind of emphasize that the founding of America was very puritanical. It's a it's a specific type of Christianity mm -hmm. that isn't necessarily that way in other parts of the world. Russia, Greece, Eastern Europe, even even Western Europe being more Roman Catholic, having a lot of Anglican kind of influence and stuff. America is very unique. Um, and our brand of feminism is unique because of that. And we did have a women's temperance movement. Like you said, Carrie Nation was at the forefront of it. And we did have something else unique going on, which was like the Western frontier. So the very first uh, states that allowed women's suffrage were Western frontier states. And it was for that reason. It was There was a lot more women who ended up, for whatever reason, having to be single and independent out there. A lot of men died, you know, um, that kind of thing. And so it was a more individual, it was a very specific culture that other parts of the world don't understand, that mm -hmm. individualist American West mixed in with the First Great Awakening Protestant revival, right? So a very specific ethos with a bunch of moving parts going on that most people don't understand. And it's like, hard to know where to start talking about it. But since you brought it up that way, that makes it very easy to explain. Um, 
there was definitely a, a movement of women with temperance and with prohibition and with public decency. And one of the reasons that anti-suffragists gave for why they didn't want the vote, which I thought was so interesting because most of them were actually progressive. They said, we are right now neutral and we are not partisan because we are not a political bloc. That gives us a moral high ground to influence politics without having to be in politics, which at the time was considered to be a pretty dirty, you know, kind of lowly uh, thing to be doing that a lot of uh, women who considered themselves good Christian women didn't really want to be part of, but they did feel really strongly about social movements. They did feel like they wanted temperance, they wanted morality, they wanted clean water and food for children, they wanted national parks and city parks and safe places for them and their children. And they said, we're afraid that if you pass women's suffrage, we will just become yet another voting block. Politicians will pander, um, we'll have lobbyists trying to, if money will get involved and we'll lose our moral high ground that we have right now as nonpartisan citizens. And they did have a lot of influence. A lot of the legislation from the mid to late 1800s that was passed for things like food safety and temperance, those were the result of women's groups and women's clubs um, going to politicians and saying, here's what we want, you know, here's what, and they had a lot of sway over their husbands and things like that. So I thought that was interesting that they felt like it was more of a moral question for them. And they really wanted to maintain like a sense of moral high ground and, and like a more, like if we're going to advocate for something, we want it to come from a pure place, not a political power dynamic kind of a place. So that definitely was part of the whole thing. That was definitely a big factor that, like I said, is hard to talk about sometimes because there's so many moving parts and it's so specific to the United States. You didn't have necessarily that going on in England. You had different different reasons, different dynamics going on, like in England and Australia. They had the suffrage movement at the same time, and these women were all communicating via letters and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it was just different. So America's kind of specific, and it's for that reason that you just mentioned. So do you believe that there is some other um, negative force that oh, yeah. maybe yeah. maybe yeah. influenced? That's the other thing in the book. I do reference a book by a Swedish professor named Per Faxneld, who wrote his PhD thesis on this question. And uh, the he, his book is fantastic. It's far more uh, deep and long and difficult to read than mine is for sure, uh, because he's a PhD. But he talks about how openly a lot of the 1800s suffragists and women's lib activists openly declared that Lucifer was their uh, mascot, their, li their liberation symbol, because he was bringing enlightenment, because you know, he was telling Eve that she could have knowledge of good and evil. And they saw this as a good thing. It's kind of this classic, it's a classic Gnostic view in a way that the <clears throat> Old Testament patriarchal God is a bad guy. And that Lucifer was just trying to be a helper and a light bringer and an enlightenment kind of guy. Um, and this is, again, we're in a very specific time in history in the United States where because it's Protestant, and we have the five solas, which say you can read the Bible and the Holy Spirit will guide you as an individual as to what it means. A lot of people started to have these alternative interpretations. That's why you see things like Mormonism and 
Seventh-day Adventism and Christian Scientism and a lot of these offshoots that the main church is kind of considered to be heretical popping up everywhere. Um, I do talk in the book about how in the 19, 1840s, there were hundreds of cults, mm-hmm. cult communities all around the United States, and people don't know that. And it was based on this idea, right? That's when you get the Amish, the Mennonites, the Quakers, the Shakers having their own communities with kind of their own rules, their own laws, their own version of what Christianity meant. So some of it did come out of this infighting among Christians as to like, what are the tenets of Christianity? What do we believe? And well, I have a different interpretation than this guy has. And the Great Awakening was touring ministers and preachers Mm -hmm doing these open air preaching festivals and whoever was the most charismatic, the most interesting, it was kind of like televangelism before we had television, they would get big followings, right? And they would raise money and they would build churches. And that's how all these different denominations kind of started. But yes, I think it it kind of depends. It depends on your interpretation of things. Because if you're, if you're like a staunchly orthodox meaning and the word orthodox meaning like correct teaching from the traditional view like i am you're going to see that all that stuff is heresy and you're going to see it as a dark force although i've had people read my book and say well i i agree with them that lucifer was actually an enlightener and i think he was you know trying to liberate women i think they were correct about that and i don't think he's necessarily evil there's some parts of christianity that think Jesus and Lucifer are like two sides of the same coin. So mm-hmm. from my own personal view, I would say it's a dark force that is trying to sow discord between men and women. It's trying to liberate women from what? Well, from their children, from their husbands, from their family, from the men in their lives who have the most interest in their well-being and convincing them that those people should be looked at with suspicion because they have the monopoly on force and they could abuse you but not everybody sees it that way. So I kind of explore those themes in the book a little bit, but overall I do think there is a dark element underpinning this. And we see that in some of the like witch trial stuff, which is why I go over, you know, witches and witchcraft in the book as well, because um, I actually had professor um, Edward Dutton on my show yesterday talking about his book on witches And that there really was witchcraft happening. A lot of people in America now because of like movies, plays and books that make make it sound like witchcraft never was real. It was just hysteria um, and, and just innocent persecution. There was actually like major witch covens and women who openly admitted Mm -hmm. to being witches um, throughout history and in different places, but they, they really did see Christianity as this awful oppressive force. And they saw Satan as a liberator and uh, the good guy, right? So from that perspective, I would say that that's, yeah, a dark force that is behind this, that's trying to pit us against each other, just like we were in the garden, right? So another sort of tentacle of this octopus would be we put to politics. The politics was a big part of that. But then when does it really start to take root in academia? When does it really oh, start taking hold? That starts happening in the late 60s when the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation come together to create women's studies programs in all the major universities. And this is something we see in academia in a lot of aspects we see like a lot of 
postmodern stuff coming in, a lot of Marxist stuff coming in, and feminism was certainly not an exception to that. So this is why I had to write the book, actually, because prior to the 60s, if you read a mainline history book, it sounded more like mine. There's, um, I've got to get this up on my sub stack because I just finished it and I haven't put it up yet, but it's a paper about the history textbooks and what they say about suffrage before and after women's studies programs. And it's by a, a man who's an academic and worked in, in history departments as a professor for his whole career. And he says in it, that before women's studies and gender studies departments, they talked about the anti-suffrage movement. They talked about a lot of the things that I put in the book, right? After gender studies and women's studies departments take over, they use what is called standpoint theory to rewrite the history. And this is the idea that, well, we can't listen to what the old textbooks say with all their factual information because it's written by white, you know, white Christian male oppressors. So we have to rewrite the history of women from the standpoint of what they would consider the oppressed woman, which changed everything. So they took out the entire anti-suffrage movement. He actually um, analyzes 13 different major textbooks that were used in universities before and after. Wow. And he says they, they completely erase it. They just take the anti-suffrage movement out. And a really key thing they leave out is the fact that in a lot of states, the anti-suffragists ironically wanted to do a referendum where they were going to let women vote on whether they wanted to vote. I know that's like meta meta irony, but it gets worse. So the pro the pro suffragists blocked the referendum. They said, no, we can't let women vote on if they want to vote because they'll say they don't want to vote. Isn't that the craziest? So crazy. And he goes over all of this. And I have some of this in my book. I cite some of these statistics about how the few referendums they did let pass were so bad. Like only 4% of women showed up to say they wanted the vote. The rest of them who did bother to show up, they didn't have big numbers, but those who did show up said they didn't want it. So you have suffragists blocking voting and anti-suffragists encouraging voting and they just completely take these things out. They take out all the arguments that anti-suffrage organizations had for why they didn't want women's suffrage. And so they, they really just commandeered the history and they've been gatekeeping it for 50 years. So all we know, like in general, the population out there, all they know is what women's studies and gender studies professors want them to know which is why when they see a video of me talking about this stuff, their first knee-jerk reaction is, this woman is crazy. She's insane. She has to be making this up, which is why I had to thoroughly cite all my sources and things like that, because I knew the things I'm trying to tell people go against everything they've been told by the mainstream. You know, So that's actually how that happened. That's actually why I wrote the book, because I thought, well, I didn't know any of this, and nobody else seems to know any of this, and there has to be some effort to kind of set the record straight or at least tell the other side of the story. Absolutely. So you probably get accused of being the white female Uncle Tom a lot. I get that. I get why do you hate all women? Uh, Why do you hate yourself? Um, You must be in an abusive marriage and your husband put you up to this and told you to say these things. Um, Just all kinds of all kinds of crazy 
crazy things that people come up with, or just the uh, classic, you're a grifter and doing this for money. Uh, let me tell you, if all I wanted was some money and fame, I would have started like a makeup channel or something where I'm painting my nails <laughs> and putting glitter on them. Much easier, far less pushback, far less, you know, uh, social shaming and all that sort of thing. So like, well, if your I was makeup, just... your makeup is flawless. I will say that. <laughs> I, I worked in the beauty industry like for 20 years because it was something I could do part time around my kids. Uh -huh. I quit. I quit that when they started wanting me to show little boys how to do drag makeup. I was just like, can't justify it anymore. I'm not going to put false lashes on a 10 year old boy and tell him how to be sexy for the camera. I'm not. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. I just, it, it, it wasn't okay with me. So I completely quit. And that's why I kind of said to my husband, well, clearly I'm not going to be doing this. Uh, and I do have a very artistic side, but I have a really analytical side too. So I was just like, I'm not sure what I should do with myself. Like what, I don't know what would be like the best thing to invest my time in. And he suggested this and it's, it's been a wild ride and lots of fun <laughs> and kind of crazy, but it's, it's been cool. I mean, I get tons of emails from people all the time, you know, saying that this really changed the way that they see things and think about things. I've got women who email me and say, you know what? I always really just wanted to stay home and raise my kids myself. And like, maybe I'll have a career when they're older, or when they move out, but but I wanted to be a mom and stay home. And I just felt like that wasn't an option. I didn't think my parents would support it. I didn't think my friends would support it. Everyone's always expected me to go to college and have a career. And, you know, your book kind of gives me courage to do what I actually want to do. So that's been worth it to me. You know, all the hate I get is worth it to, to get those kind of emails and letters from women saying, yeah, I'm just, I want to be a mom and I'm going to do that. Yeah. So. I love that. The more the more children who grow up with their mom in the home and their parents together, I think is a great thing. And this was not like all the stuff I do is not to tell women, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that. Clearly, because here I am right talking to you guys, selling a book. I'm doing some stuff, too. I'm not saying women can never work. That's never been the case either. It's just that if this movement was supposed to be for me as a woman and for you, Hunter, as a woman and for my four daughters, we should at least get to hear the truth about it and decide for ourselves what we think was good about it or bad about it and where we think it went right and where we think it went wrong. I just feel like we deserve to know the real history. Absolutely. And and to be able to look at the outcomes and decide what we, you know, if women deserve to have choices, I feel like motherhood should be one of those choices. I feel like raising your kids yourself, maybe homeschooling them, if that's what you want to do, those should be socially acceptable choices. And certainly when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, as a kid who was in gifted programs, that was not an option. If somebody asked me, asked me what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said a mom, they'd say, no, no, no. What do you want to do with your life? Right. And I've had comments made to me over the years as a stay at home mom, like from friends or family who would say things like, oh, it's such a shame you never did anything with with all your brains and talent. Jesus Christ. Except, you I know, know, do the and most thought, important well, thing in the raising world. Raising five kids isn't doing anything with my life, exactly. you know, so. So I do want to push back on that aspect of things, too, and say, hey, if you're going to say all women deserve a voice and it's about women having choices, yeah. then I'm going to represent the side that wants this. Absolutely. But they don't like that. 
they don't like that. <laughs> well, I think the challenge, I think the challenge that when we look at history is that the agrarian uh, uh portion of our history was an extremely hard part it was very hard living so yeah. it was hard for everyone it was hard for yeah. men it was hard for women it was hard for children children were working on the farm women were working on the farm I I come from stock where a woman had a baby and then continued to plow the field that yeah. same day like that's just <laughs> the way it was so I think the sales pitch to move into this industrial industrialized and industrial era was easy for some people because they they looked at this idea of living in a city or living in another environment where you didn't have to rely on your your own community to grow food and you didn't have to rely on your own family labor that seemed to be like great it's like awesome I can go and work in a factory but men weren't used to working for other men so this is where the alcohol element came in and and a lot of drinking came in so men were taken out of this this autonomy and put in a factory to to answer to another man and a lot of them did not thrive in that environment so then yeah. what's the next wave of labor is you get women and children working in factories and men are getting drunk in a bar all day long so yeah. i think that's where the bifurcation of the family initially started and it was because the family unit had already had some suffering and they had already had a hard go of it. So then there's this huge wave of immigrants that come into the country thinking they're going to have, you know, streets paved with gold and it's going to be this great life. And then they move into these cities and it's slums and, you know, a lot of suffering there for children and women. So yeah. I th again, I think there's this other spiritual element here that is at play that comes long before I just think CIA, MK Ultra, all these things are opportunistic experiments that just used what was already happening to their advantage. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think you bring up a ton of great points because uh, like Thomas Sowell said, there's really no solutions to human suffering. There's really only trade-offs, right? So you're totally correct. And uh, Professor Dutton was talking about this on my show yesterday, how during periods of like, say, really cold weather, or like, like you said, with an agrarian society, if you have a bad crop for a couple of years in a row, and everyone is suffering, or maybe you have a plague go through and a third of the people die off, or you have a huge war, and you know, 40% of the men die, and there's not mm -hmm. enough men to support all the women. These are the kinds of harsh conditions that put pressures on people and kind of change social dynamics. So there, there is an organic element in that way, or as you said, you could see it as some kind of a spiritual element where there's hardship created. And then maybe if there's an entity or a force that wants to co-opt that and use that to destroy families, to pit men and women against each other, to pit classes against each other, basically to create more human strife and conflict mm -hmm. and things like that. I I, me having, you know, an Orthodox Christian worldview, I certainly believe in that we fundamentally believe there's a spiritual war and that that's what this existence is about, that there is a real spiritual realm 
there are real entities there and that we are not unaffected by them. They are here, they, they do affect us. And I mean, this is part of why a lot of women were doing things like, like the spiritualist movement in the 1800s with fortune tellers and spirit mediums was so popular because like you were just explaining, this was a time of tremendous hardship for a lot of people. And you have a couple factors, you've got like Darwinism coming into play and some people switching to this atheist materialist scientist paradigm yes. and other people reacting the other way with the spiritualist movement. Um, and I think any of these things can be co-opted by, um, you know, malevolent forces against us for sure. Um, and there's, there's also another thing that a lot of us in this day and age, especially in America, where we have the team red and we have team blue, we have like the conservative team and the liberal team. Um, and we are stuck in a dialectic where you're either on our team or you're on their team. And yeah. this is the good way, or this is the bad way. And writing this book really killed the last bit of that in me because <laughs> of being on <laughs> I any mean, team, I was you starting mean? to, I was already starting to see the problems with like the false dialectical tension stuff, mm -hmm. but writing this certainly just wiped out the last of that because a lot of this stuff is problem reaction solution. It's Hegelian dialectics. It's, yes. If you look at, like you were saying, the conditions in factories, well, the trade unions didn't come about for nothing. Right. And so there, there was problems there, but then the trade unions created other problems and different power dynamic struggles. And we have, you know, capitalism isn't perfect and has plenty of problems, mm -hmm. but also communism is far from perfect and has a lot of problems. Yeah. And so a lot of times people want to look at history and be on one team or the other, and mm -hmm. that never tells you the whole story. And it does tend to neglect the metaphysical spiritual dimension of how human beings are affected by suffering and strife and conflict. So yeah, yeah these are like big questions and this is the kind of stuff that i really do like thinking about that i personally find the most interesting and usually people either love that about me or they'll be like you lost me with that stuff <laughs> like, i i was just here for some statistics and yeah. you just went off into off the deep end <laughs> i love it that's i think the perfect exquisite note to to draw the conversation to a close on fantastic advice i totally agree uh and I think the the book is fantastic. I highly suggest uh, the the listeners out there check it out. There's an audiobook version now, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe tell people where they can find that stuff and find your work. Yeah, you can find my book on Amazon. I've got a actually a Spanish language version coming oh, cool. out later this week, uh -huh. so that'll be really cool. If you if you hate Amazon and you don't want to go through them, I totally understand. You can always uh, find me on social media and just shoot me a DM, and I'll. I can send you a copy instead if you'd rather buy it from me and not from Mr. Bezos. Cool. Um, you can find my YouTube channel. Uh, it's just Rachel Wilson. Um, on Twitter, I am Rach4Patriarchy. It's Rach, the number four, Patriarchy. And then my Substack is rwilson.substack.com. Fantastic. What an honor. Thank you so much for having me on. It was Absolutely. an honor and a pleasure to speak to you. And we send you many, many blessings to you and your family. Absolutely. Same to you guys. Thanks yes. so much for the great conversation. Thank we, you. It was fantastic. We would love to have you on again, whether that be after your next book comes out or not. And maybe your hubby could join us too. Yes. 
Yeah, he's a he's an interesting guy. He's got his own uh, <laughs> debate show on YouTube that he hosts and he debates on and stuff too. So yeah, very, he's definitely an idea man who's got a lot to say. So absolutely, he's, a, he, he's also a character, but he's yeah. very interesting. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been uh, I've been dipping my toe into some of those debates over the last week and great yeah, stuff. Great. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yes he's, All right. he's very entertaining where i can be a little bit dry and academic at times he's a very <laughs> he's a fun guy <laughs> yes he knows how he knows how to stir a pot we'll say that <laughs> all right rachel well thank you so much for coming on and i will uh, yeah. i'll get in contact with you and let you know when this comes out okay great thanks right. so much guys yes. thank you take care oh wow that was great it was great I- really like Rachel. She's super cool, super cool woman. I agree. The book was really, really informative too. At first I was thinking that, you know, this information was um, uh, good in and of itself. I think that it was definitely written from a point of view of her uh, religious beliefs. And at first I thought that was a limiting factor because I think there's plenty of arguments to be made for the occult roots of feminism without comparing it to it being anti-Christian. But I understand why she did that. Uh, uh, It makes sense from where she's coming from, and in the end, it didn't affect the subject matter. I think uh, it was interesting but not surprising to me to find out that there were connections between occultism and feminism because i think as i was saying earlier in the conversation we are still seeing the residue of that that with the atheist uh satanists um like the 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 i always forget exactly the wordage used on the target uh t-shirt satan knows my pronouns or something like that. you know yeah. what i'm talking about yeah yeah weird weird connection like how is that sexy on any level i don't i don't understand the lure of the that combining those tropes well i i mean i i i think (laughs) i'm just so like i get so i find it so obnoxious that that we have to fight satan damn it (laughs) because it seems like you know it's it's very easy to see that all roads do lead to this dark energy being uh, the puppet master of all of this shit. You know, it would be one thing if, if these systems of belief or these thought processes uh, were coming from a positive place. I think that's the thing that's so maddening is that, you know, if you look at it just from its base level and say, you know, Women should have rights. Well, of course women should have rights. <laughs> humans should have rights. Of course we- humans should have rights. People who identify as bugs should have rights. Sure, they should have rights too. But when you see that the, the at the core of, of this these movements, it is to destroy or erode something that is... Um, not necessarily negative Mm. like families are not by their nature necessarily negative all men are not evil all women are not good so i think that's the part that's so frustrating is that i think the base is so uh obvious 
the 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 core of what these movements are is so nefarious is so evil that i can't believe anyone that that some people can't see that yeah there's a lot more collateral damage these days than there were when we're for instance, the suffragettes were organizing because now, especially in the transgender movement is what I'm thinking of, is that people are wanting rights at the expense of other groups and classes and genders, whole genders. So in this case, women's spaces are getting invaded by men who are pretending to be women and and drag queens are allowed to perform their routines in libraries and shit like that. And there's a time and place for that stuff. But in front of children and having these people uh, invade spaces at the risk of women feeling safe or kids feeling safe, that's not good. No, no civil rights movement up until within the last decade had that same sort of dynamic. And now, I mean, that's just that just shows you how how uh, precise the divide and conquer has become because now in order for one class supposed oppressed class to have their rights they've got to fuck with other classes and subdivide and infight and there's got to be constant confrontation when i don't think that that was necessarily so much the case back in the day well i i believe that it is at the core of of the human experience to want to protect the underserved to protect people who um, have any kind of dysphoria or any kind of uh, mental illness or are impoverished spiritually uh, mentally um, debilitated in any way. I think that that is our duty as healthy people is to protect those who are compromised. I think that's what we're here to do as humans. That being said, I also think that someone that has just any type of dysphoria, any type of gender dysphoria, I think they should really be given all of the information before their uh, mental issue is medicalized. And I think that's where I have the problem, is that the trend is to immediately destroy the body and not really look at the long-term effects or outcomes of these surgeries of... um, these medicines that they're giving people. And I think that people get really wrapped up in the, the contagion of taking these things or getting these surgeries because they see others on social media getting, um, getting points and, and getting attention and, and they feel like they want attention. And so it's a way to get attention without really understand the suffering that they are going to experience and that that's not going to change. Changing the physical body does not change the mind. It doesn't change the brain. And so I think that's the part that I get so upset about is that I know people who've had these surgeries and that they have worked for them. 
I know people who have had these surgeries and it has not worked for them. And it, it creates a suicidal ideation that is compounded, that it's worse. So this is where I look at these things and I say, okay, we are truly having a spiritual war. There's something going on here where this person's confusion or their upset is being used against them. And instead of them getting the care that they need, they are they're basically, they are collateral damage and they are became, becoming uh, medicalized without really understanding the consequences of those decisions and that they are co-signing on a lifetime of surgeries. And back to what Rachel was saying about boundaries and how no boundaries is not necessarily a good thing. I would quantify that by saying some boundaries, I think, should be dissolved. Uh, those that engender, no pun intended, tribalism, um, those that are based on arbitrary characteristics, uh, those that are imposed from media or government or anything like that, basically made-up boundaries, um, uh, the ones that are instilled from from outside, from the external. Uh, I think those should be dissolved. So I think some boundaries are good to get rid of, uh, but I understand what she's saying. And she has said in other interviews that, what these movements want is a total dissolution of any rule whatsoever. Um, but some rules are necessary to keep things running the way that they are. Some rules are based in natural law. Um, mm-hmm. I think those are the ones that we really should pay attention to. And those are the the ones that are, I think, uh, being disregarded in a lot of these movements, feminism included, um, at least extreme feminism, radical feminism, um, and definitely the trans movement, uh, for fucking sure, the transhuman movement. Um, so I think it's good to have things rooted in nature. It seems like this stupid fucking obsession to technologically tame nature and to tr- somehow transcend it, that's what death is for. Like, that's when you get out of the body and you go do other shit. Don't do it while you're in the body. While you're in the body, deal with physicality. Deal with the natural world. Deal with how nature works and how you can work in harmony with nature. Don't try and shape it into something else or to monetize it or to somehow commodify it or weaponize it even, which is what we're seeing in a lot of these movements too. It's good to stay rooted in that. So again, I guess it's good to have a root in both worlds. The natural world also includes the spirit. So to disregard that uh, leads to a completely different list of problems. Um, and that's what I think a lot of this obsession with the physical body and it not being right. And that's, that's all rooted in the, in the, in the physical, um, in the physical world, in the material world, material reductionist science has set up this, this, uh, ideology where this is all there is. This is what we have. So we need to focus on what's right here, right now, and uh, manipulating it so that we're happy. Um, and that can turn into a whole crazy different kind of uh, destructive narcissism, too. I was talking to someone yesterday, one of my academic mentors, about kind of the state of the union and the state of humanity. And you know, this person specifically sees things in a very uh, binary 
uh, manner when it comes to race and, you know, seeing uh, black people as being underprivileged or underserved and white people as being the patriarchy and being the, the ones that have privilege. And one thing that I said to this person was, maybe this is not a black and white problem. Maybe it's a green problem. And what we're really talking about is affluence and people who have power. Uh, and And that that is the biggest issue is that there are people in power who want to keep the rest of us fighting each other and the rest of us seeing each other as enemies because they there's a very small number of those people and if they keep us fighting each other and see and seeing each other as the enemy then we don't really see the bigger picture and the bigger enemy their true enemy and so that's where these uh clashes come and i watched Yesterday or two days ago, I watched uh, this clip that was the Rockefeller Covenant. And if you listen to the Rockefeller Covenant, it is every single thing that we discussed today with Rachel. It outlines every single aspect of the destruction of humanity and the necessity to destroy and erode human relationships, uh, uh, male female relationships gender binary uh, children academia all of it it's all intertwined it's all interrelated and again the idea is that we are feeding this great master which is uh, the wealthy and people that are quote-unquote in power And they are actually very fearful of us because we have numbers. And if people realized how powerful we were as individuals and we really worked together, then none of their plans, none of this, their nefarious agendas, none of them would work. So I think that's really why we keep doing what we're doing. It's not because we just love to talk. It's because we're really trying to push back against this energy and, you know, keep ourselves kind of tuned into what's happening in that that context, but also in just reminding ourselves of what's important in our daily lives and doing what's important in our daily lives, which is connecting with each other, connecting with our family, with our friends, and also connecting with people who are listening or watching us. Because I think you don't necessarily have to agree with everything that we talk about or agree with all of our guests, but the fact that you're willing just even to entertain these thoughts is important. So that's why we're here is not to indoctrinate anyone, but to give people the opportunity to examine other perspectives and other points of view. Uh, I love that Rachel has a Orthodox Christian perspective uh, I I love that she has a faith that she is devoted to and that means something to her. And so I find it important that we respect people's perspectives, regardless of how much they align with ours. 
Yeah, I think that Rachel is a very open-minded person. Um, I I think a lot of what gives Christianity a bad name to some people, particularly atheists, is because they see them as constantly proselytizing and, you know, saying, kind of nodding their head, and you can tell that they're thinking, but you're going to burn in hell. Um, but Rachel is not that kind of person at all. Um, she's very open-minded, and uh, she her brain goes lots of different places, and she's passionate about her pursuits and what she's researching and finds it important um, at the risk of uh, seeming like, again, like I said, like the female white uh, Uncle Tom, like she's betraying her gender or whatever, but she's actually exemplifying her gender. Um, she's not saying that, I mean, she's basically saying women, as she said, women should be women, men should be men. And that can include a lot of things. Um, but most often it tends to lean in particular directions, which we have been steered away from, or they've been stigmatized, toxic masculinity, you know, like having babies and staying home to take care of them is seen as something that's old fashioned and antiquated, when, you know, that's how things worked forever. It doesn't mean that it, those those roles have to be calcified and turn into something that is some kind of a power play or one has to um, dominate the other in the sense of um, oppressing them or keeping them from being uh, or exemplifying them for their role in the, in the partnership. So... I don't know. I, I like her point of view. I like a lot of the things that the book uh, discussed. And again, I recommend it. And I think that perhaps we babbled enough unless you have something that you would like to add to the end. I just applaud her bravery and the fact yeah. that she's willing to go on social media sites and have these discussions with people. Uh, I am far too sensitive to do that. And so... I, you know, I've never been on Twitter, not once. I've never tweeted. I've never put any content out in that platform. Uh, I got off of Facebook long ago um, because I just, I didn't feel like I, it was serving me in a way where uh, I was being productive. Very quickly, I think the difference between what she's doing and that is that it's you're interacting with a live person right in front of you or not right in front of your screen, right in front of you, which is a lot different than doing it abstractly through a social media site. Yeah. I just, what I, I've just chosen a different um, perspective sure. and my perspective is academia and working with people face to face or, you know, on discussion boards and classes and, you know, so for me that works because it's a different, there's a different level of discourse that can happen and it's a little bit more long form. Uh, so it's challenging in many ways because I feel I have my own limitations there where I don't want to piss people off or ruin my academic career or upset anybody. But at the same time, I feel very passionate about the things that I think and feel and I'm learning constantly. And so uh, I just applaud her for having that kind of bravery because I think it does take a lot of bravery to 
deal with the public because you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, but you, <laughs> even you said yourself uh, that you you have gone into a discussion and stated it exactly how you felt it or how exactly what your thoughts were about it, and you've been met with good response. So yeah. I think that's the problem with discourse uh, yeah. these days is that most people are scared to stand out. They're scared to voice an opinion that uh, has historically... Uh, gotten people in trouble or gotten them ostracized or whatever but we have to we have to disregard that i think and the only way that things are going to change is by speaking that's true speaking out and it doesn't have to be in an aggressive way or in a way that's confrontative just state your case yeah Yeah. i just don't have time (laughs) so i have to choose my battles very carefully because i don't have the time to get on on a lot of social media sites and and have those kinds of exchanges uh, but Speaking I of, I love that other people do. Yeah. So that's all we've got. <laughs> Speaking of which, you've got to tend to some academic I do. Uh, I do. obligations. But yes. thank you all so much for listening this far. Hopefully you got something from this. Um, her links will be in the episode notes to find her work. And you can get a hold of us by emailing me at themeltpodcast at g. At, at protonmail.com or hunter-muse at protonmail.com feel free to reach out uh, thank you all so much for listening and thank you patrons for helping to support the show you help to keep the, the lights on and the wheels turning and um, eventually this will be uh, something that I can devote much more time to and I guarantee that it will be even a better show at that point um once I can, I feel like I'm, I've got my foot in four different worlds now and the podcast is just one of them. So thank you for your help and there's great stuff coming your way. Goodbye. We love you. Right? We do love you. To hear the full-length version of this episode... Get access to exclusive and early episodes and participate in our monthly Zoom meetups for as little as $3 per month. Just click the Patreon link in the episode notes or visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast. Contributing financially will help to make this podcast my full-time gig that I can devote more time to and allow me to create more content. Other ways of contributing would be giving us a favorable review or rating wherever you get your podcasts, subscribing to us on YouTube, spreading the word wherever you and your tribe congregate, or just by sending us your positive thoughts and intentions. In a quantumly intertwined and holographic multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.